Hey there, y'all. It's Shabril. I wanted to introduce this episode because it's a little different than what I've done up until now. Although I would like to feature this format more as we move forward. I'm interested in shedding light on my little corner of the world by engaging in intricate conversations with interesting people doing interesting things, particularly as it pertains to leadership and change making. Today's episode is an interview with Aisha Carr, who is a candidate for the District 4 seat on the Board of Directors for Milwaukee Public Schools, the largest public school district in Wisconsin. There have been a number of questions and some suspicion swirling around Aisha's campaign, so I wanted to give her a chance to answer those questions in a more full and nuanced way. So, without any further ado... Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jibril Youssef Faraj. Um, it's been a while since uh, I've put one of these up, so um, I just want to introduce, reintroduce myself a little bit. Um, grew up here in Milwaukee, uh, was homeschooled up until high school. I attended and graduated from Riverside University High School on the east side of Milwaukee. Uh, a Milwaukee public school, and uh, had the fortune to attend and graduate from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, uh, the Big Ten's only private college, uh, after which I came back home and uh, worked here for a number of years uh, as a journalist, uh, during which time I founded a news organization called milwaukeestories.org, uh, where I shared more than 200 personal stories of people all across Milwaukee, more than 65 different neighborhoods. Uh, I departed from journalism in 2018, and since then I've been working as an independent musician and artist. Which brings us to today, I have Aisha Carr here with us. Uh, she is a school board candidate for MPS's District 4, and we're going to be talking today through, uh, through a few things. You know, we are, um, we're friends. I'd say, you know, we met while I was uh, still in journalism, and we've stayed in contact over the years and connected in a number of uh, different ways. And... Uh, in full disclosure, Aisha is also a uh, a supporter of my musical journey. Um, so thank you for being here, Aisha. We really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking the time out to um, engage in difficult conversations. Yeah, and that's that's what this is all about. You know, even though uh, we are friends, even though we're friendly, mm -hmm. uh Anyone who knows me will tell you oh, yeah. that I don't pull any punches <laughs> nope. and that I one of the reasons I am here is to ask the difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's more important than ever, uh, especially in these times, to be holding our friends to account and, um, you know, to 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 
engage with the world in a critical fashion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm excited to um, have someone who is interested in posing the difficult questions and hearing my honest responses. Um, a lot of times people rest on the things that they're um, told or the things that they hear instead of uh, connecting with the source to uh, get closer to the truth and the depths of what's being said and what's being done. So I, I am very appreciative. Absolutely. So the way that we met mm -hmm. was in the context of what was this, uh, 2016, 2017? I feel like it was Sherman Park when we met. Okay, so there was even was a little, there's the even a little more context yeah, there. Yeah, um, yeah. We've been around and, and walked in some of the same places, but mm -hmm. um, w one of the ways that we really got to know each other a little bit better through. was uh, through this process of what essentially marked the beginning of kind of your, if I can put it this way, contentious relationship with MPS oh, yeah. um, and, and your departure from MPS as a full-time teacher. Is yeah, that correct? Absolutely. Um, and it, and it's centered around this, um, uh, an event that you had organized mm -hmm. with your students yeah. um, where they were publicly giving some presentations and making their voices heard. Um, final exam. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were, there were other official stories, you mm -hmm. know, about uh, that, that this was actually about um, uh, a field trip mm -hmm. where there weren't, where you hadn't adequately gotten permission, yeah. I think. And, you know, yeah. I ended up speaking with some, some students and parents on that topic as well. Um, and I think, I think what came out, it was not only this event and all of that, but but the radical ways which you encouraged and allowed your students to engage and ask questions mm -hmm. and um, just just interact with the world around them. Absolutely. Yep. Is that is that an accurate portrayal? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's perfect. Uh, that's exactly how I would frame it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so so what I'm curious about is what what got you to this point um you know who 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 is aisha and and how uh through your experiences and such were you formed into the person where you ended up in this situation and then um just to take us past there you know what is your uh what is your philosophy when it comes to education? You know, what is it that drives you? Okay. Um, so just for clarification, when you say gets you to this point, like point in the candidacy and the campaign or just in life? I was at that point that we were talking about where we, you know, where we came together, where you're engaging with your students okay. um, and, you know, find yourself at odds with uh, your employer. Okay. So... One of the things I will say, my um, one, I am a Milwaukee native. Uh, I was born and raised um, here in the city. Um, I actually bounced around a lot as a child. So at one point in time, I lived in Hillside Housing Projects. And then we relocated to Laugham Park Housing Projects, which 
kind of has been dismantled um, and, and, and um, renovated and changed. But then we relocated into the heart of 53206. Um, where um, my father purchased the home and it was burned down by his girlfriend at the time. And so that then led us our family home that uh, my father still has now. And so my roots is here, um, uh, deeply rooted here in Milwaukee, uh, in the heart of Milwaukee and some of the most marginalized communities. Um, but in that, what I've learned is that um, in just observing the surrounding communities um, and the conditions of our neighborhoods, education was the passport out, right? The problem was we didn't always, we meaning black children in uh, those neighborhoods, uh, didn't always have access to um, quality education. Like we didn't have access to quality housing. And so we had to make do with what we had um, access to or what was in our um, our um, locus of control or um, our, our, our reach. And so, I had been a student in MPS from K through nine. Um, I had some of my best memories in elementary school and middle school. I had a lot of educators who were radicals, who did not follow curriculum, did not teach in a traditional way. Um, I was raised and taught in a system at that time that um, really appreciated and valued and promoted um, hands-on um, practical um, educational experiences. So we learned things in the classroom and then we were able to um, um, demonstrate our learning through hands-on project-based learning or excursions, um, expeditionary learning opportunities. And so fast forward, that really shaped and molded what I deemed as a quality educational experience, being able to build things and understanding the, um, you know, the, the standards or foundations of geometry, um, learning about geometry through architecture and building architectural designs through toothpicks and popsicle sticks. Um, Sounds like magic school bus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was very much so hands-on. It was not by the book. In fact, I cannot recall any time that uh, any time from K through eight where I was reading and learning from a curriculum or a book. Um, and so I had those types of educators. Fast forward, entering the field of education, I've always thought that was the way to teach, to ultimately um, develop a greater, broader knowledge of the concepts that are being delivered in the classroom. So when it came down to me um, leading the district's Black Lives Matter resolution in the school year of 2016-17, I was uh, presented with the opportunity. I did not necessarily qualify for the position because I didn't have the teaching certification that was required. I think it was a social studies license that I needed. But because of the work that I had done um, in the past with project-based learning, I'm sorry, um, taking my students to Canada, Washington, D.C. for the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March, taking them to hear seminars where Dr. Angela Davis was presenting and teaching. Um, just through those opportunities, I, um, I, I've always been that teacher to uh, implement project-based learning and expeditionary learning. So when it came down to being screened for the positions, while I did not meet the qualifications as outlined on the paper, 
they looked at my resume of the work that I had done in the community and with my students. So I was promoted to um, from being a special education and English teacher to being the comparative ethnic studies teacher, one of two out of the entire district. And this was at James Madison. This was at James Madison, but it was also throughout the district. So a part of the comparative ethnic studies um, teaching position that was um, birthed out of the Black Lives Matter resolution, we had to facilitate uh, racial equity trainings. Um, we had to do uh, professional developments at Central Office, at North Division, where teachers gathered um, to um, pursue like different professional development opportunities. Um, in, a, in addition to that, we then had to teach the Comparative Ethnic Studies course, which was at my school at the time, James Madison Academic Campus. And this is the one question. This, yeah. is, this mm -hmm. is kind of the core. It gets to the core of yep, what we're talking yep. about. Yeah. So, so during that time, we didn't have a curriculum and we were just basically told to just, it's the pilot year, like do your thing. Like, you know what students require or demand and you know what, what fun and uh, innovation looks like in um, the educational system. And you also know that our students are lacking an authentic, true understanding of who they are at, at the core and also the greater picture of systemic inequities. And so teaching the class year long, it came to the point where final exams were due. And as educators, we have to submit a draft of our final exams. I didn't feel comfortable being the radical teacher that I was and also with my upbringing in, in, in a public um, educational system, I didn't feel comfortable with giving a paper exam. That was not gonna show or demonstrate my students' growth um, or uh, abilities or the learning that had occurred. And so I presented the task to my students to uh, presented them with the task of one, developing some other skills, events planning, networking, um, organizational skills, collaboration, entrepreneurialism. And in that, I presented um, the task of um, them hosting an event and teaching the community what they had learned. And, I, and, and in that process, me and my colleagues would sit on the sidelines and assess their presentation and assess their the depths of their research and their understanding, and that will be their final exam grade. So my principal and the teachers in my building were so fond of it, they loved it, right? And you essentially asked the students to research whatever... Mm -hmm. It was that they wanted within that lens of like racial inequity. I let them right? go with it. At this time, it was just like, you all know what we've learned over the course of the year. Here is a snapshot of everything that we've covered. I am presenting you with the task of developing a presentation that hits on each standard based on common core standards. Um, and I want you to teach others what you learn. And so it was ultimately, too, a way of me determining what they deemed as more important uh, or what subject matters they, you know, deemed as more important. And so they and, had and, a rubric. And, but they, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, my understanding from the conversations back then and was that a lot of them chose to focus on their personal experience. A lot of them chose to focus on their personal experiences um, through the lens of research, data, um, and philosophical 
um, teachings and understandings that were presented during the class. I mean, living in Milwaukee. Living in Milwaukee. You know, as black students Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. most segregated city in the country. They did a segment Um, on that. You know, in living, like, we have high rates of poverty for people of color here. Incarceration. And then being... And then being in an education system mm-hmm. that they essentially, my understanding was, you know, said wasn't serving them in the ways that they needed. Yep. Yeah. I remember one point in part of the presentation where they had conducted research based on the incarceration rates um, of 53206. And then it was like, yep, this is what mass incarceration looks like in the black communities. But this is what mass incarceration looks like in a classroom. So then they drew a comparison or a correlation between mass incarceration in our city and or in, in society mm-hmm. and um, school to prison pipeline in the schools. And mm-hmm. they did that. They did so by referencing uh, the 13th documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the books we read was The New Jim Crow, Mass mm-hmm. Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Alexander. Um, 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 they also reference like Dr. Uh, Angela Davis uh, research, uh, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings on culturally responsive teaching. And so they infused every aspect of what we had learned in the class to make it relevant to their lived experiences and what they've observed in the community. And it was all research based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they talked about when they go into their communities or their immediate neighborhoods or hoods, um, they see houses that are boarded up. They see houses that have like um, bars on the windows to uh, avoid invasion um, or robberies. And then they had pictures of their schools and how there was gates and bars across the bathroom doors and they had to get permission to use the restrooms. And then they took pictures of the windows in the classrooms and how they were guarded with, you know, bars or, um, 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 I don't know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but yeah, so they, they did a comparison in that way. It ruffled feathers and I knew it would, Mm -hmm. I knew it would, but I also did not want to diminish or take away from their shine and what they had learned. And I never wanted to reject student voice. And so it was their truth. Because this seems to be, to me, the the highest manifestation of representation of what education should be, yeah. you know, is the the um, the synergy between research and then applying that in our in our lives yep. to identify the ways that we are oppressed mm-hmm. um, in order to find a, a way in a direction out of that through through expressing mm-hmm. ourselves mm-hmm. Um, and then understanding what the bars of our prisons look like. Yep, yep, yep. All of that. That is exactly what I was hoping to achieve. Mm -hmm. One of the things I made very clear to my students, I didn't want to have any part in it. I wanted to find out what they learned. I wanted to find out or learn if I was effective in my teaching. I wanted to find like opportunities for growth in my practices um, I also wanted to rattle or shake up things in the system. I asked them to invite the superintendent, school administrators, the mayor, the chief, which were all present. I also asked them to invite teachers and students from other schools. So needless to say, I think we had about 200 and something people there. Teachers had brought their classes as field trips. 
Um, the chief, uh, Flynn, I think, mm-hmm. at the time was mm-hmm. present. Uh, the mayor was present. Um, we had schools in other sectors. So we had charter schools, students and teachers there. Um, we had key stakeholders, developers. Uh, but most importantly, we had the administration. So the message was loud and clear. The problem was the deliverance and the content that was delivered was so powerful, visceral, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that people couldn't handle it. People could not handle the internal destruction that was occurring in the fact that it was being displayed in a public forum. Well, and, and in fact, the implication that what these students were experiencing was a result of their own failures because mm-hmm. these are the people mm-hmm. in leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, uh, I, I don't think it's fair to hold, you know, to hold us responsible for everything. Right. No, and you no. can look at, uh, you can look at history and you can look back and you can look even at a district like MPS, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that had, that had major, major faults in the, in the past, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of segregation and, and busing and, and segregating schools and all those kind of things. We, the people who are in leadership right now or at mm-hmm. a given moment in time can't be held responsible for all of that. Mm-hmm. However, however, we, they are responsible for some degree and Absolutely. for moving us forward in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, something, too, that I've come to understand about myself and just moving throughout the world is that when I feel defensive about something, mm-hmm. it's likely that there's uh, there's some feelings or emotions for myself tied up in that, mm-hmm. that I know I'm not doing enough or something Absolutely. to that degree. Yeah. So, you know, so it just speaks to me volumes that that they reacted in this way. I know one of the things that, that I was able to identify and confirm was that um, uh, there had been changes made to a bulletin, um, a, you know, or a, a, a graphic promoting the, the event. Um, you know, some people might refer to that as censorship, mm-hmm. uh, but it definitely did come down from the top, of, you know, the highest uh, reaches of the MPS leadership. Um, they they shut the press down um, because we invited press. Yep, yeah. Um, they they changed the the um, flyer, the marketing and advertising strategy. Uh, they had us shut down us promoting it on, or them promoting it on social media. Um, and did you receive any you know specific comments in the in the in the wake of this event, or did any did anyone in in leadership in particular approach you? Of course, I was called into central office. Uh, I was asked to stop the event uh, multiple times, and I guess this is where I was at at the point where they started labeling me as rogue because I refused. Um, and at that point, it was just like, well. Which battle do you want to fight? <clears throat> it was already out in the public. A lot of teachers and a lot of students and parents and community stakeholders were excited about it. As so, your students were. As my students were and had invested the time and everything else in. So what it came down to, do we pull this event and create an even bigger picture? Because I made it very clear that if they took that opportunity for my students, it was going to be war. Well, I mean, um, that's, you know, that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect example of like of how harm is perpetrated and that would have been additional harm on your students in in my feeling you know so um yeah that's uh 
That's unfortunate. Um, I, I want to just check in with you here and see if there's anything else that you feel needs to be said on this. Um, yeah, so to, to the point of the field trip violation, here, here's the, the issue with that. We were practicing in the evening. It was after school hours. The event was the next day. And so I wanted to ensure that one, everyone was on time. Everyone was prepared. Everyone got there um, at the same time. And so I connected with parents because after school, it was it was after school. At this point, it's no longer like anything that we're doing associated with the school day. And so this is where the, the field trip violation issue kind of came in. They said that I should have had permission slips to meet with the students during the evening hours um, and working with the students because it was something associated with the school. My uh, point of defense was we did not, we were not doing this during the day. The school had at that time rejected this opportunity or this event. And so we were on our own. And so that's what it came down to. I did not get fired. I did have disciplinary action. They suspended me um, from school. I think it was for, at first it started off as two days. And then two days turned into five days out of nowhere. I had a union rep that showed up but did not protect or support me or advocate for me. And so uh, even after trying to fight it, nothing had came of it. And before you know it, it was leaked to the public and um, everyone assumed that I was fired. And mm -hmm. there was like not much follow up at all. And so after that point, when I got past the, the actual event, <clears throat> my students who were interrogated, many of which were denied um, their rights, their privilege to walking across the stage. One actually just left. Um, but it, it got really it got even more contentious. Um, and what it came down to, people were trying to figure out if this is my politics because I'm running for the school board or if this was like legitimately a violation of school policies. If you ask me, it was uh, a way to really smear my name uh, or run a smear campaign and get some dirt on me uh, to diminish uh, or hurt me at the polls uh, because I was running for school board at the time. Well, and I found that one of the ways that um, oppressive systems work um, at least, you know, what I've experienced in Milwaukee and what I've observed in other places is that when people uh, who can't be controlled mm -hmm. um, and who are uh, uncompromising about um, allowing voices, marginalized voices to come to the fore, um, when, when, when people who are in charge of the levers of power realize that, then there, yes, there are, you know, means that are brought down on them often surreptitiously or often there's an excuse mm -hmm. that's made, mm -hmm. but it's really in an attempt to, to harm or silence, you mm -hmm. know, to, to stop that from happening. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on from here cause okay. we spent a good deal of time on that, but I felt it was important to get through the details of that event okay. because, Thank you. um, I, I think it, 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 it brings a lot of what we're talking about here to the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, in this next portion, I want to allow you to respond to some of the associations that you have. Yes. Because this is, has, is one of the big questions, is uh -huh. one of the big um, maybe suspicions that mm -hmm. has been brought out regarding you and your candidacy. Um, you did, as you mentioned, you also ran for school board in 2017. Yeah. 
um, really right, right kind of on the heels of this event. Uh-huh. And um, one of the things that happened that was kind of famously controversial was that the um, Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce, mm-hmm. MMAC, which is, I think, viewed by many as a... I mean, it is a corporate lobbying group um, viewed by many people as a conservative entity Mm -hmm. um, in town, one that um, has been behind some for-profit schools Mm -hmm. and and advocated for uh, kind of a a, a STEM-type curriculum, which diminishes the arts in many ways. Okay. Um, Are you talking about STEAM? Steam, steam. Mm-hmm. Well, steam includes arts. You yeah, know, and that's yeah. new. But okay, okay, but okay. when when I was reporting all of this on all of this stuff, the big thing was STEM, STEM. which doesn't include arts. No. And um, MMAC actually was one of those big organizations, you know, mm. backing all of that. Okay, so, okay. Um, so you know, so, no, it's it's viewed uh, again suspiciously oh, yeah. by a number of people. <laughs> they uh, they donated. I think you. From the campaign finance reports, it looked like at least maybe four thousand dollars to your campaign. Um, I saw an official donation from the MMAC. Mm-hmm. There was a donation that came through Howard Fuller. There was yeah. a donation that came through another individual, uh, Daniel Luger. Um, mm-hmm. Luger was the last name, okay. was, was what I recall. Um, so, so you you know you received a, a number of funds from mm-hmm. them, and this was something that really. Uh, Put you at odds with the teachers union mm-hmm. and uh, caused some people to you know view your candidacy with some skepticism, um, particularly considering the recent event and you know contention yeah. between you and MPS. Um, you know, you expressed to me in conversations that you, to some degree, regretted accepting that money. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but did so. Uh, because, because you didn't have to add, you had a campaign to run. You didn't, (laughs) you weren't asking for it and it just kind of came. Um, I know, you know, how, how 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 nice and refreshing that can be. Um, but you, you know, you did, you did express that in the, um, in the aftermath that you didn't fully consider what kind of implication it would have. Mm -hmm. And then in the aftermath, you've reconsidered this. So. So one of the things that, you know, that that you've pledged to do and that you haven't done nope. this campaign cycle totally is take not. any money from them yeah. uh, or associated interests. No conduits, no none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not taken anything from MMAC. So, and it come. Yeah. And I've sent it back. Okay. Um, so it's same as last time. No conversations. This time around, I, I just having four years now since my first run, I've learned a lot. And when it's all said and done, I don't want the people of the community to look at me with distrust and question my integrity or anything like that. And I know that there will be at odds and we won't agree on everything and everyone's not going to like me. But for the most part, I do, I'm concerned and I care about what key stakeholders and families and parents um, feel about the decisions of those who claim to be leaders serving on behalf of the community. And so that was my stance this time around. I knew that I was going to catch flack um, from any and everyone who remembered the first run or who would do something as simple as Google me and read articles. And so some of the things I just can't get around, but 
in these four years, I've learned a lot, a lot of things that I didn't know then. One of the things I do want to um, go back to what you said as far as me being at odds with the um, Milwaukee Teachers Union or Education Association, whatever they are. And, and um, to be clear, you were a part of the union. Five and a half years. I was even, I think, a part of the substitute union when I resigned as a full-time teacher. Um, but I will say this. Before I had ever accepted any funding from MMAC, I met with Lauren Baker, who I believe is the president of MCEA. She's either the president or executive director or something. Was definitely in the leadership at that point. Absolutely. Yes. She was the head honcho. Um, I met with her at a coffee house in Washington Heights. And I informed her at that time, and this was early on in the campaign, I said that I spoke with Annie Woodward. Annie was considering endorsing me. I wanted to run for school board. Um, would I have the support of my union? And she asked one question. What was my stance on choice and charters? And I said, well, I'm a product of choice and charter in some capacity or another. My daughter attended Milwaukee College Prep, which is a public charter school. Chartered, uh, chartered by Milwaukee Public by Schools. By Milwaukee Public Schools. It's one of the best. Mm -hmm. um, she was a student there uh, from K-4 to second grade. And then I was a student at NPS from K through ninth grade. And I got kicked out of the district. And I attended Mesmer Catholic High School. And I graduated from Mesmer. Mm -hmm. So what I explained to her was because I've experienced now every sector of education i was a teacher in mps a student in mps at one point i was a parent of a child that was um in a charter school mps charter school and then transitioned into a traditional public school and then i taught um or i graduated from the private school i couldn't possibly say that i was against the other sectors because i've lived i've experienced the good the bad and the in between of every sector it was in that moment where she said in exact words, we will not support you. We're going to support Annie because she votes the way we need her to. That's when my relationship with the Milwaukee Teachers um, Education Association or MCEA um, ended. It was then. I went through the endorsement interviews and even in going through those after I had the conversation with her, I thought I had a fair chance because I was one of them. No. And so before, long before I accepted MM, any MMAC money, I was rejected by the union that I was a proud member of at the, at the point, proud active member. So I just want to put that out there. Um, the thing with the, the, the MMAC money, as we know, in order to run an effective uh, campaign, you have to have contributions. You have to have donations, right? Little did I know that my budget was going to start at five to seven thousand dollars to win this to then 50 or so i didn't know that and so at the time when i ran i was a full-time teacher i was a full-time graduate student and of course my parenting like duties will never go anywhere i'm a full-time single mom and i was always active like with my students i did home visits I remember feeding families in the evenings just to get into the home to figure out why this child wasn't showing up to school or my class. So none of that changed. All these hats that I wore 
something was going to get neglected. It was definitely not going to be my daughter. It was definitely not going to be my students. Graduate studies did get neglected to a certain degree. But the campaign, I was told that this was a door game. And so you had to knock on doors and make contact with voters. Naturally or inadvertently, something got neglected there. And it was fundraising. I didn't make time to sit and create a phone banking script and call people to raise money. My family is not a wealthy one that was spoon fed or not spoon fed, but like have the riches and all the wealth where I could just call them and ask them to max me out. I didn't have those connections. And at the time, I also didn't get endorsed by my union. And because they didn't endorse me, the other unions didn't endorse me. And so I was I was at a disadvantage. I was. And so it came down to me um, starting to talk on the radio, me starting to um, the article starting to get out. And people were asking me, what was my stance on education? And I've always stuck to it. I've never wavered or changed my messaging. I support all sectors of education. And, and because that, all sectors of education educate children is where I understand where you're coming from on that. And they don't do the best. I support all sectors of education because children who look like me are in all sectors of education. And for me to say that I don't support choice or or charter, that means I don't support those babies in those schools. It, well, we'll we'll get there. We'll okay. get there. I want to I want to quickly move on and, and move through some of these and. And, uh, you know, just kind of be able to get a nugget here. I'm going to say some names and then, you know, I want to allow you the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you know, regarding the MMAC, um, I don't think he's a current president or in leadership, but Tim Sheehy was the president of the MMAC for a long time. Mm -hmm. You actually still serve together on a board. City Forward Collective. A City Forward Collective. Um, And so you have a professional relationship and I'm curious, you know, what, what that's like. So here's the thing. I don't know Tim Sheehy personally. During the time when schools that can, um, and pave Mm -hmm. were So, right. So schools that can and pave to, um, uh, school support nonprofit organizations merged, as I understand in 2000. 18 2019 yeah. um and relaunched as city forward collective um they are led by um patricia hoban yeah. who is a founder and a longtime principal of the carmen schools which are also uh it's a charter yes. school that is chartered by the milwaukee public schools mm-hmm. um and it has an, a number of different people who have worked in all different forms of education uh, on on their staff and on their boards. How I got to the table with that was because Dr. Howard Fuller had a black town hall meeting and it was for young leaders. And he said, it's time that our, that us old black people move to the side and mentor you all and create spaces for you all at the table. And in that, I was invited to serve on a steering committee with so many other black leaders of all ages, all backgrounds. But he wanted us there to be a part of the decision-making process because what he says, and I agree with, if we do not have a seat at the table, how will we be in a position where we can impact or influence change? So I started on the steering committee. 
part of the goals of the steering committee was to then create the body that would serve in this organization and also create the governing body. I was very adamant about remaining involved um, in that process to hold the leaders accountable. Simply put, like the fact that we have a lot of white individuals constantly in a position where they're dictating what black families um, should or deserve in the educational system, telling parents what they should and should not do with their children, yet they're not putting their children in these seats in these schools that are failing. I needed to be a part of that because as we know, I like to disrupt systems. And so when it came down to it, a lot of they, they asked who wants to serve on this board. And I was adamant about that. And I'm not going to apologize about that because now I'm in a position where I get to hold Dr. Patricia Hoban accountable, her team accountable and work with them to push the needle and really challenge and push back when they're doing or making such decisions that will hurt children, uh, particularly black and brown children. And so for that reason, that was one of my first board positions and I was proud to serve. And in that, I learned about board governance. Um, in that process, Tim Sheehy was on the steering committee as well. And so I actually met um, Tim Sheehy, I met um, leaders from the choice side, charter side, and the public side. And so that has ultimately expanded my professional network um, and taught me a lot about education. It actually taught me a lot about MMAC, um, things that I didn't know when I ran the last time around, hence the reason why I came out this time around and said I will not take support from MMAC. Um, but yeah. A lot of people were invited to that space. A lot of people were invited to remain um, in those positions of service on the board or in the, the organization. A lot of people stayed and a lot of people left. I was one that stayed and mm -hmm. I continue to stay. And, and, and yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I understand the, uh, the, the feeling or the need to, to be or stay involved in something. We, uh, you know, anyone who thinks that we can make change by, by sitting by sitting out, you know, doesn't uh, maybe hasn't engaged in those kind of ways. Um, I, I think there's also, you know, uh, a perspective to this that, that I've definitely experienced in my life, right, is that um, it can be hard to change institutions from the inside. And um, so I'm all, I'm I'm on the side of, you know, it's important for us to create alternatives and this and oh, that. Yeah. Um, I also, uh, because I had someone from uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, mm -hmm. um, who uh, are running a slate of candidates and, and actually the candidate who's running against you yeah. uh, is a member of DSA. I'm a, actually also a member of uh -huh. DSA. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I ended up having a conversation with uh, with someone over there who kind of pointed this organization out and said, whoa, whoa this is a privatizing privatizer organization. Uh, so I actually got on the phone with uh, someone who um, had been a source uh, when when I was in journalism. Israel De Bruin is also on yeah, the staff there. I love Israel. Um, and we had a bit of a conversation last night and he expressed to me a couple of things which I think it's important to mention here. You know, to the to the the question of, you know, having someone like Tim Sheehy on the board, mm -hmm. you know, he he stated that, you know, Industry is always going to have interests in education as long as we have the current 
system that we do. Oh, now, yeah. whether or not anyone uh, agrees with that or thinks that's a good thing, yeah. um, you know, that is the way it is. And, and I, I hear that. Um, Israel also made it clear that uh, that one of or uh, the uh, kind of preeminent uh positions or motivations of this group mm -hmm. is to create a um a a parent um advocacy organization or body I'm on that committee um and so you know just for a little bit more context into what these people do i know it's easy to look at descriptions on on websites and draw conclusions you know regardless of you know which how you might be reading into it but uh that was the result of my conversation with uh, with Israel. Um, I want to, because you mentioned the name, let's move on to this, Dr. Howard Fuller, um, someone who you've described to me as a father figure, yes. um, who you have a close relationship with, who is also viewed skeptically by yeah. many. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people would just des describe him as the father or one of the pioneers of the That's school true. choice Parental movement, choice um, you know, at large. Mm -hmm. Um, he uh, was MPS superintendent for a number of years, mm -hmm. uh, attended North Division High School, yeah. uh, and, and founded and operates uh, a school that went by the name of Milwaukee Collegiate Academy, yeah. uh, and now is Dr. Fullard, Fullard. Fullard Academy. Academy. Yep. Um, I was first introduced to Dr. Fuller through an organization called uh, Schools and Communities United, who does have some association with the yeah. teachers union, but is also essentially one of those uh, parent, parent advocacy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, groups. And, and, and they gave me a, a number of uh, reports from, from a few different years and said, hey, look at the percentage of students that this school is expelling. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. you as someone who is expelled from school, I'm sure, you know, you have um, some some perspective, you know, in, in this conversation as yeah. well, which I love to hear. Um, as a result of that, I did look into this a bit. Mm -hmm. I sat down with Dr. Fuller, had an interview, um, and, and then he showed me a tour through the school. Mm -hmm. um, I did a good deal of reporting on this and even found, you know, an individual who had been expelled, which, mm -hmm. you know, in instances like this, it's very hard to locate those people. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, we didn't end up printing something mostly because we weren't able to find more individuals who had been expelled to okay. get those personal accounts, right? Because okay. when in a story like this, that is what I feel is important, right? To understand, mm -hmm. okay, what is the effect on these children mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that can, that, that makes a difference, I think. Um, and, and I will say, I, 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 um, I was very skeptical of this um, and it was, it's high percentages, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, um, mm -hmm. they were, they were going, th you know, it wasn't just expulsions, but, but students were being dismissed or mm -hmm. leaving, mm -hmm. you know, which, which often is a product of, you know, maybe an expulsion process beginning, mm -hmm. but then being given the opportunity to move on before that happens. Right. right. Um, and it just, it just, I, I did end up having a conversation with, with one person who said, you know, I think Dr. Fuller's um, 
point of view on this is a little more intricate or nuanced. Um, okay. It came off to me as, to be completely honest, and I'd love oh, to yeah. you know hear yeah. what hear what you think. Uh, it came off to me as uh, Dr. Fuller has a particular um, view or vision of black excellence. And was doing his best to bring that to fruition, potentially to the degree where it was it was discarding some students. Okay, okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I just, tell me a little bit more about your relationship and, um, you know, what, what that relationship is like. So first things first, uh, Dr. Howard Fuller went to high school with my father. Um, both of them took different pathways dr fuller was set up and heading more on the, the trajectory of um higher education um scholarly work and so on and so forth my father on the other hand had multiple children my father was a gangster he had served um um time he had two felonies and um he was uh, he later became a single father to me and so in understanding my father's background and understanding the intersectionalities with um and with dr fuller's background it was like i have fatherly figure or i have an actual biological father who i absolutely adore i'm a daddy's girl but then i have a different type of father so fast or or backtrack just a little bit I relocated back to Milwaukee in 2012. I think it was 2011 or 2012. And at that time, I was interested in putting my daughter in summer enrichment programs. The time when we relocated here, it was past many deadlines to enroll my child in different programs, but there was one that was willing to accept her, and that was a summer reading institute that was led and spearheaded uh, or founded by Dr. Fuller um, and one of his, um, just one of his pride and joys, right? And so I connected with Dr. Fuller when he came to the Boys and Girls Club to present um, this opportunity to the Vice President of Programs and Operations with the hopes of enrolling children in the program. I ended up enrolling my daughter. So that's how our relationship started. I was introduced to him, uh, introduced to him in the boys and girls club and from there through picking up my daughter and meeting the staff and being involved in that i learned more and more and more about dr fuller fast forward dr fuller would have consistent meetings with black people and as a newbie back on the scene in my hometown i just felt like it was important like i was climbing the career ladder and i was an administrative assistant at the boys and girls club at the time that was so out of my lane. Like I was nobody's assistant. I had this bachelor's degree. I was working towards my master's degree and I had plans of going to law school. Like being an administrative assistant or somebody's flunky at that time, because that's how I felt like I was being treated. It was not for me. And so utilizing the skills and the um, the skills that were developed during my time in DC, I learned about informational interviews, I learned about networking, and I learned about just showing up. That's how opportunities came about. So that's kind of how my relationship started with Dr. Fuller. It was very hands-off. I didn't know much about him, but as, as I watched him engage like the new generation of Black leaders, it was so inspiring to me. And, and more so than anything else, 
the fact that an elder saw enough in me to take me and everybody else on and invest his time and his energy and his efforts and his knowledge and all of that into little old me that was that was that meant everything to me and I will forever cherish that and so my relationship with Dr. Fuller is beyond education it is a respect that I have for a black elder in the community who has paved the path um to educational equity and educational excellence and has invested in us young leaders um, and takes the time out to talk to us, to listen to us, pass opportunities on to us, um, teach us with an unbiased lens because Dr. Fuller, contrary to popular belief, has never told us what to think. In fact, the very first one-on-one I had with Dr. Fuller, he gave me the book, The Flat World of Education, or The World is Not Flat, or The the World is Flat, or something like that. I'm sorry. This was years ago. And um, he gave me that book and told me to read it and then come back and meet him. And so I've never been told what to think, how to feel, what to do by Dr. Fuller. What Dr. Fuller saw in me and the reason why... He continues to invest in my leadership even years later. He saw my persistence, my determination, my fight, my hunger for knowledge and my hunger for more. And he's also saw me engage and connect with children in the community in a way that some of the other leaders in those spaces didn't. And so for that reason, Dr. Fuller continues to support me. He supported my last campaign. He supported my professional development throughout my entire time here in Milwaukee since I met him. And he supported this campaign. And that's a contribution that I would never turn back, return, take for granted because it's Dr. Fuller. It is. And I absolutely love, respect, admire um, him. I do. And I will go toe-to-toe with people who says anything negative about him because it's a part of him or a part of it that they just don't know. And if they did, they would never say those things. There are things after reading Dr. Fuller's book that I did not agree with. Um, There are things that I've seen and I've heard and I've pushed back because he encouraged us to do that. He creates a space for us to fight and get it out and challenge each other because that's what's going to make us better. So again, when I hear the things that are said about Dr. Fuller, it hurts me. It's like talking about my father and I'm a daddy's girl. Like I'll go toe to toe with anybody over my biological father and I'll go toe to toe with anyone over that one. And over time, I've developed two other fathers, Narayan Leeser and Derek Bible Rogers. And I feel the same about all of them. And each one of them has developed different aspects of who I am today. And I love that. I love that. It's a blessing. I don't take it for granted. Um, and, and I wish more elders would take us under the wings like, like they have. At the same time, uh, you know, you you shared with me a particular instance. You you don't always agree. Oh, yeah. And uh, you shared with me an instance where you shared some thoughts about uh, Betsy, Betsy DeVos's uh, yes. uh, appointment uh, <laughs> and and how you didn't agree with that and how you, that ruffled some feathers with yeah. uh, Dr. Fuller. Yeah. But, you know, what what was the outcome of that? And I just wish more people knew about it. And I don't even know if I, like, it's nothing confidential. So during my last campaign, 
Uh, I think that's when Betsy DeVos was first appointed as the the head education of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was just like what. <laughs> So, I mean, I agree with you. I think she was a, ultimately a, an unqualified candidate. Who absolutely. We, we can now see at the end, you know, what what she, what has she accomplished other than, you know, perhaps whittling away at some of the protections that we, you know, hope would exist in education. Yeah, I sent the, um, I actually didn't even send the email out, but it was exactly what I was thinking and feeling. Um, it was uh, my team that had um, email blasts going out. And that was the headliner at the time. And at the time I was being called a privatizer and this, that, and the other. So we were going to extreme, going through extreme measures to prove to the community that I was not this person that they claimed I was. And it was even said that I was a Trump supporter and I was, you know, um, working in cahoots with the Trump administration. And so it only made sense when she was appointed the education secretary. It made sense to send that email out because I honestly believe and still believe that I have more experience than her in education. Um, She can be the philanthropic white woman who invests her money, her riches, her wealth. And I think that's needed. But when you are the head of education at a time where every, almost every public educational system is in a state of an emergency, I can't follow that. So the email went out (laughs) and Dr. Fuller responded and was like, I support Betsy DeVos. If you uh, feel this way, then we uh, obviously are missing the mark or or something along that lines. That was not exact quote, but he was upset that I was disrespecting someone who he had considered his friend. Understandable. We disagreed. She's not my friend. She's not my friend and I don't agree with her. And so it did. We had words, um, but he never stopped supporting me. He never stopped supporting me. I didn't have to go and change that email. I stood my ground. He stood his ground as he encouraged all of us to do. And if anything, our relationship got stronger after that. I never, he, I, I feel like any opportunity that come Dr. Fuller's way, he's sending it to all of us. And it's like, in particular, he's connecting me with individuals that will help me develop and expand my understanding and my knowledge and my experiences in education. And, and and those opportunities came more even after that campaign. I think some of the similarities as a young leader and with him being an elder and a, 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 I would call an education guru uh, or leader of, of many times, I think the difference was or the, the similarities are that we have the same fight. And regardless of what we're fighting for, we're going to give it our all and we're going to fight for those who we know to matter um those who we believe matter and need it the most and so those are the similarities and regardless of the disagreements we can always find common ground in that um and 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 again i absolutely love dr fuller thank you so much uh for this time thanks for being here um we're gonna take a little bit of a break and then we'll be back with uh with some more questions about education uh, accountability uh, quality and in the future. Welcome back. My name is Jabril Youssef Faraj, and I am here with Aisha Carr, a candidate for Milwaukee Public School Board of Directors. Um, so so we just we just <laughs> went through a lot there. 
Um, we're able to take a breath. I hope everyone's doing that right now um, because, you know, that's the biggest thing. Keep breathing, everyone. Just breathe through all of it um, and we'll stay here. Um, I want to move into a little bit of a conversation that's more focused on education, what you believe about education, um, why you're running for the board and what you'd like to accomplish. Um, you know, this question came up of of public, um, charter and mm-hmm. private. Um, this is a, you know, uh, it's a contentious battlefield amongst mm-hmm. uh, a number of different folks and people feel strongly um, about, you know, all, all of these sectors of education. If it's okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my understanding oh, yeah. um, from, you know, from covering education for about a year and a half. Um, I, you know, and, and my past experience, like I said, I'm a product of MPS. Um, I have a daughter who is currently enrolled in MPS. Uh, I feel that every student has the right to a free, high-quality education, uh, public education, mm-hmm. more, yeah. you know, more specifically. Oh, yeah. um, and I've, it's interesting, though, when we get into this conversation, because I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding, um, because we do not have that. Even even in MPS, in our public school district, um, there are a number of high-performing schools, and I, I was blessed to have, have attended one of those schools. Um, there are a number of very low-performing schools and schools all, you know, all throughout. And, um, you know, I think, I think it would be remiss if we didn't identify the, the issue or the elephant in the room, which is poverty, and, mm-hmm. that, and how this affects... Um, people and children and and all of that. Um, so obviously, you know, the school, quote unquote, school reform movement has mm-hmm. has come uh, come into the picture in the in the last 20, 25 years or so. Um, and so charter schools are an aspect of that. And mm-hmm. um, in my view, in my understanding, there's nothing necessarily bad across the board about charter schools, right? Charter schools, for the most part, are, I mean, they're schools that are governed by the same type of rules that any other public, they are They are public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, they're governed by the same type of rules that MPS is governed by, generally. Yeah, generally. Um, and, and in Milwaukee, specifically, we have charter schools that are, um, that are chartered by a, a few different bodies, and let me see if I can still get this right. Um, MATC, which I think has never actually chartered yeah. a school, but is a charter authorizer. Yeah. Um, the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, the City of Milwaukee, and Milwaukee Public That's Schools cool. yeah. actually also has authorized and operates a number of charter schools as part of their grouping of schools. Absolutely. Um, so. So you know, there's some there's some high performing schools in that group. Um, a couple of the groups that are most high performing, um, Milwaukee College Prep and Carmen, are actually a part of MPS. Um, I would say Highland Community School. Highland, I've I've heard a lot of good things about Highland Community School. Um, my understanding. Uh, hope no one takes us the wrong way, is that the, the schools chartered by the city of Milwaukee are generally in the lower performing group. Oh, yeah. That's um, according to the data, yeah. 
And, and there have been some charter schools uh, that, you know, have been, uh, have been, there has been fraud and other things, you know, of that nature. Um, in Milwaukee, it was Universal Companies was one of those, uh, was one of those organizations. Um, and this is, you know, this, I think this is kind of followed suit around the nation. There's this, there's this difference, you know, or the spectrum amongst them. Um, obviously, and then there is the voucher program, yeah. which essentially gives public funds um, to children or families to attend Parole. private schools. And actually, one of my uh, one of my siblings did attend a private school through the, the voucher program. Um, I'm not necessarily a supporter of this program. I don't think that private schools should be getting public funds. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's a, there's a more complex conversation when we get into this issue about uh, the quote-unquote quality of education, but then also maybe of the environment that children are subjected to um, and, and, you know, racism mm -hmm. that black children attending a mostly white private school may have to deal with and how that affects people. So that, as I understand it, is kind of the landscape and to give people a little bit more of an understanding about what we're wading into here. Oh, yeah. Um, does that sound about right? Is there anything that you want to add? No, that sounds about right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so people have... Conversations that I've had just generally, you know, people have brought up, again, questions about your campaign. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, as as uh, you told it to me, the uh, the head of the teachers union called you, quote unquote, dangerous. Um, <laughs> yes. I, you know, people have said that you are in support of, quote unquote, privatization, in, okay. in support of charters and, and all of this. Um, and... I just I just have to say I, I feel like it's a bit of a misunderstanding on most most people's part um, not knowing kind of the weeds of the educational system to mm -hmm. describe you in that way mm -hmm. um, you know and, and you in in the previous in our previous segment did did express um, a lot of your your teaching uh, vision and the way you go about things as a teacher um, your, your personal experience and having existed in all of these mm -hmm. different areas. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, just generally not, not, uh, not finding any, uh, you know, you can't say anything. You're not going to come out against any of these sectors because they all educate children. And, and hopefully we can, I mean, we can all be in the business of hoping that our children get the best education possible. Yeah, and I, and I won't say that I won't come out um, and declare my discontent or um, maybe displeasure um, with those systems or even call them out. My thing is I'm going to call them all out because public schools, private schools, charter schools, many of which do good by our children and many of which do bad. Um, and I think when we're talking about all sectors of education, and I'm going to speak, if I were a state legislator, the conversation would be different. Because I'm running for Milwaukee Public School Board, a lot of things are out of my control. That's a state legislation issue when you're talking about defunding um, the voucher or parental choice programs. 
I can't have that conversation now. I just can't. And I'm not going to waste my time doing so. What I will say is there has to be universal accountability. Um, and, tra- and in that accountability comes a level of transparency, a high level of transparency about what's working and what isn't. As a Milwaukee school board director, I acknowledge that just speaking from a business, uh, a business perspective, it's, it's just that it's a business. We have competition. We, meaning the public schools, the the public system has competition. And that competition is the voucher program. It's independent charters. And so in that, I have to assess my competition and acknowledge what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And from there, I have to build on that to make my system more competitive so that I can draw the families that we lost to those systems back to ours. And and that's my role and responsibility as a board member. And you talked about uh, advocating for higher teacher salaries. That's one thing that I've heard you speak on. I think there are a couple questions um, that either people would want to know the answer. Go I, ahead. I, I want to interrupt you just one sec. Sorry. <laughs> yes. One of the things for... One of the biggest things and why teachers go to other sectors, a big hindrance or a big hindrance in the public school system in recruiting teachers of color is the state requirements for teaching certification. Mm -hmm. Those requirements are not necessarily needed in the other sectors. Mm -hmm. So we lose educators in addition to students to the other sectors which is a problem. Well, well, and the, and the, I mean, the argument here from the other side would be that, well, then you're getting diminished quality. Is that, are you? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. So here you have it. I had an emergency teaching certification. I've never had a permanent one. I started off as a shitty teacher and I ended as a phenomenal teacher. In fact, Setting how I feel about myself and my confidence to the side, my students would argue that their best educational experiences came from me. And so I didn't have my teaching certification. Now, if I were a supporter of the other sectors, not only could I have left the district and made more money and even gotten probably more loan forgiveness or more support from the federal government because of those sectors, I probably could have had more autonomy to do the things that I really wanted to do, but I've been committed to public education. But let's be very clear. The same teachers who's teaching in those other sectors may have more credentials than I had while teaching in the public school system. Hmm. And so, that's a fact. So, uh, so a couple questions that I think people would want to know. Um, the first would be, again, running for the Milwaukee Public School Board, there is a limited amount of control that you have over any of these conversations as we've uh, established. Not the conversations, the um, actions. Not the conversations, <laughs> right. And we'll get to there. Yeah. We'll get there. The actions, yeah. you know, specifically, um, and I'll ask this question, is, is if a vote were to come in front of the school board mm-hmm. to authorize a new charter school, which I understand hasn't hasn't happened recently no i think there was a freeze there's actually been a freeze um per my understanding for funding for charters and and actually i i should state at this moment that i had a a very short conversation with ingrid walker henry Mm -hmm. um who was in the leadership of the mtea Mm -hmm. um we didn't get i didn't get to hear her thoughts um her, her expound on her thoughts mm-hmm. um, and she never ended up getting back to me 
But she did say that that wasn't necessarily true. So I'm a little, okay. I'm a little in the, you know, um, what I do know is that MPS has not been authorizing charters, you know, like haywire. Um, no, no. They, they authorized a group and they have renewed some charters. Some bad ones. <laughs> which, you know, that is certainly a conversation. Yeah. Um, I think that's important uh, because, again, we don't. We, we need to be looking at quality here um, and accountability is important. But, um, you know, if, if a vote were to come up um, and, and MPS is looking for to authorize a new charter school, would you would you vote to approve that? Here's how I'm going to answer that, because that's not as black and white as a yes or no. If it were a Highland Community School, if it were a Reagan, if it were King if it were Golda and it was presented in the form of a charter, hands down, yes. If it were a Milwaukee College prep, hands down, yes. Those are schools that as a parent, my child didn't have access to for numerous reasons. And she's just now getting to the point of high school. But hypothetically speaking, say if these were all elementary and middle schools, they have capacities. And every parent is competing and doing whatever necessary, relying on their resources, their contacts, and their networks of support to get their child in there. Say I'm one of those parents who don't have those connections, but my child is phenomenal and I want the best for my child. And I believe that King or Golda or Highland is the best, but they have run out of seats. Put- Can I ask, what's, how do you know and what's the difference between those schools and other schools. So here's the thing. Highland Community School, I would say, is a project-based school. Um, I've actually had the pleasure or uh, the honor of going there um, and observing. I've also, uh, I have friends who have sent their children there. It's a school that has a model that focuses on intentional engagement of parents, the community, and bridging those gaps between the school and the classrooms. Highland is that school that collaborates with the community, that does project-based learning and not teaching to a test to increase their standardized uh, achievement scores or whatnot. That's what stands out to me about Highland. What attracted me to Milwaukee College Prep was the value and the investment in parents. Because at Milwaukee College Prep, I felt like I mattered and I felt like I had an equal share or investment in my child's educational experience, even in a classroom when I wasn't a teacher um, there because their teachers engaged us in such a way. Doesn't every parent want to feel that? Every parent. And you have some parents who are hands off. I'm not one. I want to be in the classroom, in the gym, in the cafeteria, after school, all of that. Milwaukee College Prep made me feel important and did not exclude me from my child's educational um, success and future in that. In addition to that, it melted my heart to go into the school and get hugs and warm greetings from the faculty and staff. 
it melted my heart to see that my child was not just a number my child's name was called and even nicknames were created as terms of endearment and my child loved her teachers and her paras and i just felt like i had family and this was at a time when i had transitioned back here mm. milwaukee college prep gave me that feeling mm. i can say as a former jmac teacher with the exception of a couple of us in the building we have fights with parents Parents would come up to the school because we made reports because we were mandated reporters and they'd come two, three, four cars deep to fight or to attack us for doing our jobs. Mm -hmm. We didn't have family events every month. Parent teacher conferences. It was rare that we got more than 10 parents. And so it's just like it was two different worlds. And, then, and and right, and I feel like some people might look at that and say, "Oh, well, they're they're different parents, you know, at these yeah. schools." And maybe to some degree, but I would say there's a difference often in uh, what makes the difference is how you treat people, how you approach people, how you engage people. How you engage them. Um, and certainly, if you are developing relationships with with parents you're not going to find yourself in that instance where they're coming up and wanting to fight you mm -hmm. because I feel like there's a level of like, we need to feel like we're on the same team. Same team. And, yeah. I, and I will say personally, honestly, and it, it disappoints me to even have to say this um, because as, as you've heard me speak about, I am a proponent of public Obviously, education. Yeah. I am a proponent of Milwaukee public schools. Mm -hmm. I want Milwaukee public schools to be the best that it possibly can. I, I have... I have had a less than positive experience. I have had to go out of my way to show up, to knock down doors in order to be in, engaged as a parent, um, as as someone who, you know, I'm not, I'm not together with my daughter's mother. So we're mm -hmm. a two household family. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I've encountered um, just over and over again, you know, barriers and, mm -hmm. and, um, it's been really hard yeah. and um to the to the degree that even uh, actually this year um you know with everything being virtual um i have not been engaged by by my daughter's teacher i mean this is actually a gold in my air oh. um and so you know i i haven't even participated in parent teacher conferences and i'm and this is an interesting because i'm someone who is very engaged in my daughter's life. Someone who wants to be engaged, like, you know, I'm, I'm someone who likes to show up. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, uh, actually this time around, they actually just had, uh, parent teacher conferences for, for this period. Uh, I actually even made a call and left a message and didn't hear back and, and didn't schedule a time. So, you know, and, and I've and I've in, interacted in other uh, in other sectors with MPS on this issue of parent engagement in more of a leadership role in my daughter's previous school. Um, and I and as a reporter and I've seen the how we fall short. Yeah. Um, and again, it pains me mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, as as far as as my understanding goes, and I think I mentioned this to you in one of our conversations, is that if we look at schooling as a building, um, and I think this is something that has come out in the pandemic, we're failing. Yeah. Um, if we're not, you know, if we're not creating those connections, if we're not hearing those voices, um, 
because the reality is that school there are no schools without parents and students. Yep, you're right. So those are the key stakeholders. So you know, other people might have some more questions on this whole. Uh, oh, I will ask. Um, you know, we did talk about funding, yeah, and that's one of the things. You know, yeah. will you advocate? for more funding to come to MPS and how? I will definitely. I think that the funding is needed in order to, again, be competitive and bring our students back. And that's my ultimate goal. But in in that, I acknowledge that in order to bring them back, we're going to have to bring them back to something that uh, offers quality educational experiences that they can't get otherwise or elsewhere and i think that's very much so possible and so i will definitely um fight to have funding here's the issue with our board and this is what frustrates me because while we ask questions like that like i've been asked that question so many times and it stops there and it's just like okay we just want to hear yes if you say no there's no room for explanation and so on and so forth and my responses have typically in the past been it's not as easy as yes and it definitely isn't a no We've had funding come through and we have a very top heavy administration. In fact, a lot of funding goes to central office. A lot of like I was even like. Um, and can I can I just mm-hmm. interrupt here for a second? Mm-hmm. Because I yes, I absolutely agree. Not only when I was in school in MPS, the administrators were, were absolutely useless. And they get, and the, they get the highest. Salaries. They get the highest salaries. And then I. And then another aspect of this I want to point out is, as you said, central office. So central office. You know, un, unfortunately, I, I would say again, there. This is not. Uh, this is a failing of systems and structures, yeah. not of people. Not of people. Not because, of teachers. Not of teachers. Because the other thing here that happens is central office ends up being a destination for some of the best educators in this system. I. You know. The the principles and this is, you know, school leadership is so important in the system that we currently have mm-hmm. where, you know, you have wonderful principals who end up leaving after three or four or how many years to go to central office for a cushy job and salary because, you know what, running a school is hard. Janelle Hawkins is one. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I just want to. Th- and I think that's her name. Mm-hmm. Carver. Mm-hmm. Elementary school mm-hmm. was one of the lowest performing schools at one point in um, in the district. With her leadership, her radical leadership, her time, blood, sweat, tears, all of that, her equity that she put into that, her and in that we acknowledge that she had to be professionally developed. She needed the resources, the support. That school turned around. Let me tell you. Well, when it was not only that, it was a number of organizations, schools that can. Thank you. uh, Teach for America, City Year, which I think is quietly one of the best education support organizations in the country. They saved me (laughs) in the classroom. And we actually, so they're a branch of AmeriCorps. Yep. And um, I think, you know, this is one of the things that is... uh, not you know not acknowledged as much is one of the things that's needed in these classrooms is support and is people and um i mean this goes to the funding conversation Mm -hmm. but you know class sizes have expanded Mm -hmm. um and one of the issues with you know my other question was 
if we can get to this at some point, is what do we do with poor performing schools? Because again, we've acknowledged that poverty is an issue here. So, you know, and and with that, you know, you have uh, children who are in less than ideal situations, Mm -hmm. um, have dealt with or are dealing with some kind of active trauma, perhaps, um, and then can be disruptive in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I think this is a conversation that, you know, works its way into, you know, what I laid out about uh, Milwaukee Collegiate Academy and Mm -hmm. and Dr. Fuller earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually did some in-depth reporting at Carver, Mm -hmm. and there were some of these same issues here. You know, they did turn the school around, but there were some of these same issues with students who were, you know, who, who weren't able to interact in that setting and were being disruptive or you know, being suspended. This is, again, this is an issue that MPS has dealt with. Um, And and, and the last thing I will say on this is, um, you know, one of the things that I observed both at Carver and at Milwaukee Collegiate Academy and I walked through, and I know, you know, you spoke about Dr. Fuller personally and and how he, you know, encouraged you to think for yourself and this and that. But but in both of those schools, I saw a bit of a culture of obedience. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and that's what was really, like, viscerally concerning to mm-hmm. me. Um, and when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, this is, again, this is what concerns me is because we're identifying success mm-hmm. as having children who don't, you know, aren't disruptive, who go along with the program and, you know. Punitive, very punitive, militant culture of obedience. And so I know there's a lot wrapped up into that, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear, you know, what, what nuggets you feel are important to take out of this conversation. So one of the things um, I will say, and I'm going to try to um, make it brief because I know I can go. I subbed at Carver. And let me tell you, I've never been chased (laughs) by, uh, I want to say she was like seven. Never been chased by a seven-year-old. Never been afraid of a seven-year-old. I got chased. This child disconnected the phone cord and the phone, uh, the actual phone, um, telephone from the wall and chased me with it. I was subbing there. I was like, never again. I'm never teaching elementary school. I'm never going back to Carver. Um, this is not what I, I visit uh, a, a few years ago when um, Hawkins, I think that's her name. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah, so it was Janelle Hawkins. And so that the the... The structure, the culture, and the climate of the school was, like, ludicrous. It was children running around, like, children cussing the teachers out. I understood why they needed a sub for the remainder of the year. Mm-hmm. That classroom teacher had turned over, I think, uh, had um, I think it was two. They were on their third teacher, and this was mid-school year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I know why they left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know why... Y'all want me to sub here long term. It's not mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you go to schools like Milwaukee College Prep, or as you referenced, which I have not been there during the day, but Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy schools where there is a strong culture and climate. You mm-hmm. walk in and you see the branding. 
uh, the aesthetics mm -hmm. and you see student artwork, you see the uniforms and you see like uh, as a parent, I can speak to like the children walking down the hallways making bubbles uh, or like <laughs> with inflated um, cheeks or I, I don't know. And it's like they're walking with their hands. It reminded me of the Sandy Hook um, tragedy, actually, mm -hmm. uh, where children were walking out of the school after the shooting and they had to walk in a straight line. Yeah, what did they call it? A carver. Now, this is so again, so so in a little bit more context here. Carver was a problem school because it was known. It was what is known as a dumping ground. So this is, you know, there, this is with like the, the, the acknowledgement that there are children who are difficult to educate that oh, end up being, that end up being expelled, mm -hmm. um, or whatnot and have to go to another school. Yep. And, um, and Carver was one of those schools that all of these children would end up at. Like Madison. Um, so they, they, they took this like drastic kind of route to reestablish culture and had all this support come in. Um, and obviously it was successful on a number of levels. Um, but again, one, so one of the things that they had there that they established as part of this culture is this, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but they called it hugs and bubbles. So they had the kids walking through the, walking through the hallways, you know, and this is someone, something that someone brought up was a problem in one of the charter or private schools that they came into is they had them walking on lines yeah. in the hallways hugging themselves mm -hmm. and you know closing their mouths and i'm like when you again when you talk about school to prison pipeline it's like how do we how do we get out of this mindset and how do we address how do we address the realities Get out of this mindset of like um, compliance and find our way into something that is more beneficial for students, um, for families. Is it just a matter of, of listening more no. to them or is there something else that it takes? It's a lot more than it takes. And I think to, to speak to Dr. Driver, a former um, uh, district superintendent, I think she had the business, the strongest business mindset of the more recent uh, superintendents. And her, I think part of her plight was to identify areas that, uh, uh, areas that were appealing to parents um, in other sectors and bring that to our public school district. So in that we created uniform policy mm -hmm. that flopped. Mm -hmm. uh, I covered that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fun. In that we created like, or there was more, I would say, investment in school culture and climate mm -hmm. um, that then led to some of the things that our competitors do that our parents, I would say, that some they parents, criticize that, that they, they criticize. Mm -hmm. And that didn't that don't even work in those sectors, but it's looked over because you get other things as benefits. It looks pretty. It puts a little bow on top of everything. It looks like Sandy Hook. Um, when I see images of those babies being escorted out after they experience one of the most tra traumatizing experiences that they will probably ever experience in their lives, and then to come to our schools and see the same thing, what message does that send? That's something that I think the district adopted based on what their competitors were doing. That was an epic failure, and I do not support that. That was like, okay, I understand the greater picture. I understand um, the intentionality behind that, but this is not it. I think when it's all said and done, 
we cannot, no longer can we operate because this is what I remember being an elementary and a middle school student in the district, one size fits all. Uh, I also remember MPS specialty schools focusing specifically on their er those areas. I attended McNair, Ronald E. McNair School of Science, Space, and Aviation. And in that, we had planetariums, we had a focus on science, um, we had a lot of earthy, environmental, like um, just science-related curriculums um, and activities, right? And that was the, the specialty area in there. Ronald E. McNair was also the school that everybody in the community attended. We all walked to school uh, in the morning. Our families knew each other. and We all walked home and played in the evenings together. In that, everybody in that area received the same quality, the same educational experiences because it was a community school. We can no longer, and not that this is a bash against the community school efforts because I think we need that but we have to go about doing it differently no one size fits all the way my daughter learns because she's much well behaved than I was she is I hate to use the term but much more compliant or obedient than I was I just shook up any building up with it I was one of those kids that were crawling up walls and stealing and and fighting and that's just and that was not my upbringing my dad stayed at the school but the way my daughter learns is not the way I learn um the way my daughter learns is not the way that my students or my my um nieces and nephews or my mentees learn so one size does not fit all so you have children who are emo more emotionally or behaviorally challenged I think one of the biggest things for them um, and just our system needs to do a better job at is connecting more with the communities and with the parents to assess what environments our children are coming out of, uh, what, in what environments our children are being raised in and determine what the need is from a communal or household stance and then bring those needs into the schools to address those inefficacies or deficiencies or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Case in point, as and, and, and James Madison was considered a dropout factory. I love, like, if I can go and be a principal and lead any school, hands down, I'm going to James Madison. My students got suspended at high rates. My students were um, incarcerated in many cases. Uh, I have students who are serving life in prison right now. I've attended so many freaking funerals of young babies who were killed um, due to gun violence. But James Madison was where my heart is. James Madison students required a different type of needs, resources, teaching, um, deliverance style than children at my daughter's school go to my ear does, right? And so I had to do things a little different. I had to infuse hip hop in my classroom to get students to come there. And so in the middle, when there was an exchange in between classes, instead of students doing what they knew they needed to do, and that was get your tail to class, I had to play music and attract them to my class. I had to go to the homes of my students to determine why you're not coming into school, what's happening. And in that process and doing home visits, was which, which was against policy. Which that I got, blows my freaking mind. I broke so many policies. It doesn't make any sense. 
but I needed to do whatever necessary to get to them. So if they weren't coming to my class, if they weren't coming to school, I went to them. I went into so many households with pizza boxes in my hands to feed them just to get in only to walk into the house and it was no furniture or walk into the house where mattresses were on the floors and you just knew the mattress was not sanitized or clean or like sufficient enough for anyone to lay their head on or you go into the house and you see so many younger siblings and you wonder why that older child is not coming to school because their responsibilities and their priorities is raising their younger siblings you don't always get these experiences at the most highest performing public schools. And so when you have a curriculum that is consistent across the board, you have to acknowledge that that curriculum is not going to be delivered or received in the same manner as it is at that high performing school as it is at the young, the low performing school. And, and for that reason, you got to change things a bit. And so I think when it's all said and done, and one of the things that I have in mind as a future school board member is working breaking down the district and working with each individual leader and teachers to be a part of the budgeting process that process is created and solidified by board members in many cases who are so disconnected and and and, and just out of touch with what's happening in our schools how dare you make decisions regarding budgetary processes when you don't know what the, the struggles or the advantages or the disadvantages are of that particular school building? How dare you? We have to connect with them to understand what the needs are in depth and then to create and build around that. If we continue to operate in the same way that we're doing, we're going to allocate a certain pool of funding for here. We're going to allocate a certain pool of funding for here, and it may completely dismiss the needs of 50 to 60 percent of the schools in your district. And then what? We blame it on teachers for the failing. We blame it on parents for the failing. And it's like, come on now. We got to check ourselves. It's we're part of the problem, too. Like, it's not just one or the other. It's all of us collectively. And so I think. When it's all said and done, that's what has to happen. Our budgeting process needs to be specific to each and every one of the schools in our district. And one of the things that I've said and I got criticized on by MCEA is allowing or creating funding that um, that supports student performance and outcomes. And it's like, yes, I mean that, but not in the way that they presented it. When I say that, our student outcomes and performances are based on the resources in part that they have. And when they don't have those resources, that shows or it reflects a low performance. It, prefer, it, 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 it reflects a widened or broadened achievement gap and the problem continues on. We need to put more funding in the lowest performing schools. We do. We do. But what we find ourselves doing is investing more in the Rufus King High School over the James Madison High School. And if you felt, if you don't believe that the students feel that um, those priorities and, and feel like they're le a less of a priority or they matter less than the other schools, they feel it. That's what creates like rifts or rivalry schools because it's like, oh, they have the better team. Their team have uniforms that look great and our team ain't got shit. Excuse my language. That's how students look at it. They feel it. 
teachers feel it. Like, oh, that school gets to travel and study abroad in in collaboration with their language department. And we know that that's going to build greater learning, but our school don't get shit. Mm -hmm. And so we have to cater to the needs of each individual school. And if we don't and we continue to operate in the way that we have been, we're going to continue to get the same results. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that, you know, the problem is, is, is intricate. And in order to solve it, we need to be intricate. We need to connect. We need to be in touch, um, you know, and, and, and that all resonates with me. And this is one of the reasons why I like you mm-hmm. is because you bring that, uh, that dynamic kind of presence and assessment to mm-hmm. it, um, which is very similar to the way that I view things. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, you know, it is just lazy. It it's late when you talk about the budgeting and how, you know, we do things with an, um, an, a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. And, and, and again, when I look at structures of oppression, um, one of the things that I um, that identifies that for me is who is doing the majority of the work or taking on the majority of the blame or responsibility yeah. and who are the people who are being paid the most. Mm-hmm. And so, or or in a position of power, mm-hmm. right? Um, and oftentimes, I think what comes out for me in this system that we have, when I say system, I just mean, you know, this is the unfortunate society that we've created around ourselves, which a lot of our institutions mirror in different ways, is that it's the people who aren't aren't being paid, mm-hmm. you know, who yeah. aren't in positions of power, yeah. who are saddled with the 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 responsibility and the blame, and and I think that yeah, we really need to change that um, that that situation. And and that's one of the things that frustrates me most. We have teachers who are amongst the lowest paid. I remember being a teacher and me and my colleagues worked multiple jobs. We even took on like extracurricular um, activities just to earn additional funds. And it's like it takes us away from everything else uh, in addition to having to lesson plan, home visit. Then we have families of our own. Like many were wives and husbands. Many had children that were newborns or infants or school age and needed that support from their parents by the time we get home we're burnt the hell out and it's like the the responsibilities continue to grow yet we're underpaid and then we're being told what to do by an administration who's getting six figures which isn't aware of the 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 struggles and the the daily reality that you're going through i hear you you know so uh, my feeling is that we need to we need to bake this into the pie um, in a way that that prioritizes listening, that prioritizes uh, creating those connections and engagement. And, you know, I look forward to uh, exploring those avenues with you and uh, hopefully, you know, continuing to keep you accountable. Uh, So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for giving me more than a minute to really speak. I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy having in-depth conversations about this and and hearing other people's perspective and sharing mine. And I just appreciate you um, offering an unbiased lens, really asking those difficult conversations or different difficult questions that a lot of people have that we may not get 
um, get to in forums or in other uh, capacities. So I, I just appreciate you taking the time out to uh, create a space for us to engage in conversations about where we are and where we need to go. Yeah. Well, here's Thanks. to continuing to listen. Absolutely, because when I'm on that board, I'm going to rely on you even more. <laughs> Thanks again, Aisha. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Appreciate you sticking with us. And uh, as I said before, keep on breathing. Woo! That was a doozy, was it not? Thank you so much for sticking with us all the way through. Really appreciate you listening and taking the time to engage in this important conversation. If you'd like to lend your support to this podcast and to my work more generally as an independent artist, writer, and musician, you can do so at patreon.com slash Jabril Youssef. That's J-A-B as in beautiful, R-I-L-Y-O-U, S as in Sally, E, F as in Frank. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate you. Hope to see you again. And until then, you keep being you.